Last night I ran across a top 10 list. I'm fond of these top 10 lists. In fact, the one this morning is entitled, The Top 10 Ways the Bible Would Be Different If It Were Written by College Students. Here they are. Number 10, the Last Supper would have been eaten the next morning, cold. Number 9, the Ten Commandments would have been reduced to five, typed double space, and printed in a large font. Number 8, the prodigal son would have come home with his dirty laundry. Number seven, Peter, James, and John would have fallen asleep during a boring lecture rather than in the Garden of Gethsemane. Number six, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden was cafeteria food. Number five, the coin Peter found in his fish's mouth would have paid for tuition, not taxes. Number four, the reason Cain killed Abel, they were roommates. Number three, when Peter and John told the lame man they met in the temple, silver and gold have I none, they were last semester seniors. All the money's gone by then. Number two, instead of God creating the world in six days and resting on the seventh, he would have goofed around playing video games for six days, waited until the night before the seventh day, and then pulled an all-nighter. How's that for a college student? And then number one, the Battle of Armageddon would be renamed Finals. Hey, last year, 302,000 students attended Georgia's public colleges and universities. 302,000. That was a record enrollment. This year, I plan to break even. Nick graduated this past spring from the University of Georgia. Mac's going to enroll as a freshman this fall in Augusta State. I guess I'm going to break even this year. My last kid is heading off to college. You know, the apostle Peter was also a student in an institution of higher learning. You see, over the years, Peter had come to realize that when you decide to be a follower of Jesus, you gain admission into the school of suffering. As a pastor, it's my duty to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You know, some folks become Christians because a well-meaning friend promises them the easy street. Someone tells them, hey, come to Jesus and you'll be healed and helped. Hey, come to Jesus and you'll be happy and prosperous. Jesus fixes all of our problems. But you know, that's not exactly what Jesus promised. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation." You see, following Jesus isn't going to instantly solve all of your problems. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. In fact, it may create for you a few more problems. Hey, folks who become Christians thinking God will get them a new job are sometimes surprised when their stand for Jesus gets them fired from their old job. Come to Jesus for love and you might end up lonelier once you realize you no longer fit into this world. Believers do gain God's acceptance, but they also feel the sting of rejection from former friends. In John 16, verse 33, Jesus goes on to speak these triumphant words, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He does guarantee ultimate victory, but that doesn't usually come until we first pass through some difficulties. Hey, I'm glad you're a follower of Jesus, and you'll be glad too. Does Jesus offer us a joyous life? A victorious life, a better life, an eternal life? You bet he does. 
But Jesus also requires that each of us take a few semesters of suffering. Even when threatened with the fiery furnace, those three amigos of Hebrew variety, you remember them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow before the king of Babylon. Stoke it hotter, the tyrant commanded. The brave men in faith were so sure of their God, our God will deliver us. But did he? He didn't. All three men were tied up and tossed into the flames. And yet it was in the midst of those flames that another man appeared. The Son of God walked among them. God didn't deliver them from the fire, but he protected them in it. And in the midst of their fiery ordeal, they got to know Jesus. They experienced Jesus in a way they had never done otherwise. They all graduated with honors from the College of Suffering. You see, Peter is warning Christians, fellow Christians, to expect some suffering in their life. Think about it. Our Lord Jesus was no stranger to suffering. John chapter 1 verse 11 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Why would we think they would accept us? Isaiah 53 refers to Jesus as despised and rejected. It calls him a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. It goes on to say he was stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, bruised, chastised. It even says that by his stripes we are healed. You see, it mentions his scourging as well. Jesus' anguish culminated on the cross, but Scripture tells us that he bore the burden of his suffering from the foundation of the world. In the truest sense, Jesus was born to die. His lot in life, his ambition was to suffer in our place. Professor Jesus occupies the highest chair in the college of suffering. Now why do we think it's strange if he asks his followers to taste a little of it too? Last week we learned that not all suffering is created equal. As Peter put it in verse 17, we can suffer for doing what's good or doing what's evil. You know, some, sometimes suffering is the result of stupidity. You know this. We're in a hurry, we grab a knife to open a package, we almost cut our thumb off in the process. It's stupidity. We suffer surgery and splints and physical therapy. If I have to pick up one more marble with my thumb and finger, I'm going to go nuts. At other times, our suffering is just and deserved. It's because of our sin. You're texting while you're driving. You know that's against the law now. Or you're swimming in a heavy undertow under a red flag. Or maybe you've been sleeping around. Hey, you were warned. You knew the risks. And now the negative consequences that result, that expensive fine, that near drowning, that rash you've contracted, hey, you're reaping what you've sowed. Hey, do the crime and you'll have to do the time. Sometimes we're stupid. That's why we suffer. Other times we suffer because we're sinful. And at times we suffer because we're stuck. We're stuck on earth in a fallen world. We live in a world stained by sin. You see, mankind has thrown a wrench. His sin has thrown a wrench into God's gears. The corporate sin of the human race invited randomness, invited a harsh and cruel arbitrariness into God's perfect order. 
This is why hurricanes arise today and disease sweeps across the planet and earthquakes strike indiscriminately. Jesus put it this way, it rains on the just and the unjust. Sun suffering is inevitable for fallen creatures living in a fallen world and it can't be tied to any one direct cause. You see, we suffer because we're stupid, we suffer because we're sinful, and we suffer because we're stuck on earth. But at other times, the cause of our suffering is a secret. We search for a reason, but there's no sane, logical explanation. We cry to know why, but it stays a mystery. You remember, this was Job's dilemma. God chose Job to defend his honor before the angels. You remember, Satan had scoffed. Oh, the only reason they serve you, God, is because you're so good toward them. God is nothing more to them than a meal ticket, was Satan's scoff. Satan thought, let a little hell break loose, and those people will turn on you in a heartbeat. And God chose Job to prove otherwise. But here's the interesting thing. Job never was told the reason for his suffering. Job never learned why his faithfulness on earth was having an impact in heaven. Job never got a reason. And sometimes we don't get a reason for the suffering we experience. There's a final type of suffering. It's experienced by folks who stand for what's right. The sinful world we occupy is a world gone wrong. That's why it hates what's right and who's right. Thus, when you dare to stand for Jesus' sake or for righteousness' sake, you'll be persecuted. This is why Jesus suffered. He was persecuted for righteousness. You see, in our text, Peter raises this subject of Jesus' suffering as an example for us. He tells us in verse 18, Christ also suffered. He also suffered. In short, you're not alone. Jesus has been right where you're at. Jesus knows your pain. No matter the reason for your dilemma, you'll find encouragement in the sufferings of Jesus. If you've been stupid or sinful or taken a stand or if your suffering is still a secret, Peter is adamant, you can still learn from Jesus. The circumstances of our suffering may all be different, but pain is pain. And Jesus' sufferings exposed him to the severest forms of agony. In fact, the sufferings of Jesus, they teach us four lessons that we can apply to all forms of suffering. I want to give them to you now, and then we'll go through them. First, suffering builds bridges. Second, suffering reveals truths. Third, it produces new starts. And fourth, suffering believe it or not, creates confidence. In a sense, there are lessons that all sufferers can glean from the sufferings of Jesus. But in another sense, his sufferings were unique. Notice how Peter begins this section in verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Now notice, Jesus suffered once for sins. Apparently, his suffering had to be so profound, so monumental, that would only have to be done once to accomplish its goals. No repeats here. At Calvary, Jesus suffered for the sin of the rapist, and the child molester, and the serial killer, and the corporate swindler. A punishment appropriate enough for all sin over all time was satisfied by God in one sweeping, bold stroke on the cross. 
All that needed to be done was done for you and for me and for every other human to be reconciled with God. That's why Jesus cried, it is finished. This is why Roman Catholic theology errs. This is why the Roman Catholic Mass is actually an insult to the cross of Christ. In Catholic theology, when the priest breaks the wafer and he serves the wine, he sacrifices the literal body and blood of Jesus all over again. This robs Jesus of the sufficiency of what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross. Anytime anything is added to faith in Jesus, whether it be a ritual or a rule or a holy day, it dilutes his sacrifice. Hey, Jesus suffered once for sins. And it was finished. And in all Jesus did, from the day he was born, Jesus was just and right and good. And you can be sure the Jewish establishment had Jesus under a microscope. I'm sure the Jewish, the Jews of Razi probably followed him around. If they could have dredged up one speck of dirt on Jesus, they could have discredited his claim as Messiah. And yet they couldn't, even at his trial, the best the Jews could muster were a few flimsy lies. No one could deny Jesus was just. He suffered not because he was stupid or sinful, nor stuck on a fallen planet, and there was nothing secretive about his suffering. In fact, what Jesus suffered became a slice of the gospel, the good news that God has ordered us to take and tell around the world. No, without a doubt, when Jesus suffered, it was the just... For the unjust, as Peter puts it. You know, even if I wanted to die as proxy for someone else's sin, I couldn't because I'm guilty of my own sin. I would be sentenced for my own crimes, but not Jesus. This is why he could bear our sin on his shoulders because he had no sin. The just stood in the place of the unjust. Jesus suffered for my stupidity. Jesus suffered for my sin, what my sin deserved. He took on himself the consequences of this fallen creation. Nature will one day be restored because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's interesting, even Job drew comfort in his mysterious sufferings by looking unto Jesus. Job said, I know my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. You see, unlike all other suffering, verse 18 tells us that Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. And we had a long, long way to come. You see, as human beings, we were the apple of God's eye. Of all he created, God saved the best to last. The apex of his creation, its high point was mankind. And yet when sin entered the universe, no one fell further or harder than mankind. The relationship we had with God is now cracked and confused and estranged and painful. The heart of God was bleeding and broken after man's sin. The heart of man was willful and wayward after he sinned. The whole universe wore a frown. You know, the best way to understand this, as I was thinking about this this week, is to sort of put yourselves in the shoes of a father, in the shoes of a dad. Now, I've worn these shoes now for 27 years. <laughs> and they've come with just about every...
every kind of emotion you can imagine. You know, I've learned so much about God by being a dad. I know what it's like for my kids to sin against me. All four of my kids are little sinners. Even Natalie, my sweet, adorable, precious little princess. I was thinking about it this week. Once when she was three years old, I told her to eat her spinach and she refused. She sinned. Boy, if it ever happened again, I must have missed it. Yet my three boys, maybe I was just so distracted by their sins that I never saw Natalie's. My three sons, oh boy. Oh yes, they've sinned. They've been arrogant and defiant and deceptive and wayward and weak-willed and disobedient. And my emotions have run the gamut with those three boys. You see, I admit I have high hopes for my kids. That's why I can get mad as a hornet and why I can worry too much and why I can stay on their case and get in their grill. On occasion, I doubt my parenting and go looking for help. On other occasions, I've let issues with my kids push me to the edge of depression. But I've never given up. I can't quit loving my kids and hoping for them. I care about my kids deeply. And the deeper the love, the bigger the hurts. You see, kids will break your heart. I'll be honest. After living now through four teenagers, at times my heart feels like a headlight after a head-on collision. But here's the deal. What I feel in regards to my kids is just a fraction of what God feels toward the sinful, prideful waywardness that, that I have shown Him. You see, the relationship between a father and a child is a complicated one. A dad is just but he's merciful. He's demanding, but he'll show grace. He's patient, but there are limits. He's trying to raise another man. I'll tell you what's always on a father's mind. He wants to fix what's broken. He wants to make it right. He wants to keep it tight. His kids are always percolating on his heart. He desires things to be right with and for his kids. And if a kid is out there somewhere, he's trying to bring that kid back. And, and as a dad suffers to bring back his son, you need to understand that God has suffered to bring us back. Everything a father wants to do for his son, God has done for us through the sufferings of Jesus. He satisfies justice and he extends mercy. He offers us grace and He teaches us obedience. He saves us and He straightens us out as well. The sufferings of Jesus reconcile all the heartache and pain and angst and awkwardness that our sin has caused in our relationship with God. Believe in Jesus and it makes it all right again between you and God. That's what He says here, that He might bring us to God. If you're a student currently enrolled in the College of Suffering, there's hope for you here in Jesus' example. For just as God did on the cross, perhaps God wants to build a bridge from you to someone else through your suffering. You see, empathy is a byproduct of suffering. 
Not too long ago, one of the fellows in our church, Shane, he called me to say that his dad needed to see me. Larry was dying. And he had reached out to his son. And I can remember going to the hospital and Shane and I standing there by his bedside. And we prayed with him and we watched him get right with God. In the aftermath, a dad and a son had sweet days together, but it never would have happened apart from his suffering. Suffering breaks down a person's defenses. And it helps people get over their pride. It's interesting, stubbornness and prejudice that looms so large when you think you got years ahead of you to live suddenly looks trivial when your life shrinks into days and into hours. Suffering can open us up in unusual ways. And even suffering can become a blessing when it gives us an opportunity to mend some fences and make things right. You see, the suffering of Jesus teaches us that suffering in general has the capability of building bridges. Verse 18 also says that Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now notice here, Peter mentions two events. Jesus was put to death in the flesh. What is that? That's his crucifixion. Jesus was made alive by the Spirit. What is that? That's his resurrection. These two events were separated by three days. And we assume what happened during those three days is what's explained in verse 19. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now now here we find one of the most cryptic passages in, in all of the Bible. Martin Luther said of this passage, this is a strange text. (laughs) What was Martin Luther? Presumably, Peter explains what Jesus did in those three days, those 72 hours between his crucifixion and his resurrection. When you combine 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, you, you begin to understand what happened. Those two passages suggest that Jesus went to Hades. Now, some of you are from liturgical backgrounds, and you'll recall growing up quoting the Apostles' Creed. And you remember the line in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell. That's not the exact terminology. The New Testament term is Hades. Hell and Hades are different places. You see, today when you die, you're going to go straight to either heaven or hell. It's straight to heaven or hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. It's heaven or it's hell. But in the Old Testament, people went to Hades. In Luke 16, Jesus describes this place. Hades was like a duplex. There were two sides separated by a vast chasm. The good side was called Abraham's belly or Abraham's bosom. Jesus also referred to it as paradise. Apparently, it was a lot like heaven, just without Jesus. The opposite side of Hades was a place of fiery torment, like hell. When the spirits of people went to Hades, their side of the duplex was determined the same way heaven gets decided for us today, by faith. Did they trust in God's promise, or did they rely on some other way? Ultimately, both compartments of Hades will eventually empty out. 
according to Ephesians 4, Abraham's side was transported to heaven when Jesus was resurrected. Revelation 20 tells us that at the end of time, the spirits in the hellish side get judged by God and get cast into the lake of fire. And apparently, between his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus went there to Hades to preach. To preach to the spirits there. And I'm sure he preached the wonders of grace and the power of the cross. But understand, Jesus' preaching was not for salvation. We preach today for salvation. We hope that people will get saved. But Jesus will preach in Hades, or did preach in Hades, not for salvation, but for validation. You see, the afterlife has no mulligan, no second chances. We're playing for keeps in this life. The heavy thing about death is that it seals our fate forever. You know, some days I preach and no one gets saved. But I still think God has a purpose. There have been times when I've had the eerie feeling that that morning God validated someone's choice. There was a person present that day who is going to end up in hell. But because of that sermon, they're going to have no excuse. You see, nobody who ends up in hell will ever be confused over what stamped their ticket. You don't ever wake up in hell and wonder, wow, what happened? How did I get here? God sends us warning signs that we either heed or we step over or sometimes we bust right through. God is going to make certain that all hell's residents are experts in the meaning of the gospel and the consequences of not believing in his promises. Before Hades empties, every ear heard Jesus preach. Every knee bowed before Jesus as Lord. After hundreds of years, each person that had scoffed at God's promise, they were proven wrong. All who had trusted, their faith was validated. Jesus preached in Hades, not for salvation, but for validation. But here's what's interesting. While the body of Jesus lay on that cold slab in that dark tomb, Jesus was preaching. Missions were ongoing in the spiritual realm. More was happening than the naked eye could see. And this is what the sufferer needs to remember in the midst of his suffering. God is still at work. Doors might be closed. Hope might seem dead. But God is still active in my situation. He's working behind the scenes, even under the surface. I can't see him at the moment. But that's not to say he's not on a mission that will affect me mightily. You see, the sufferings of Jesus reveals these deeper truths. Suffering comes in layers of meaning. Hope you know that. You've got this terrible headache. And you stay home. Why'd you stay home? It was a headache. Well, maybe. But there's more. You learn later that your headache has been caused by some kind of blood pressure problem you've been having that you've needed to address. And so really, you, you stayed home because of the headache, but it was also because you needed to know about this other problem. But there's more. Because that headache hit the very day that a terrible accident occurred at the intersection you normally navigate about the time that you arrive. And on and on it goes. You see, suffering reveals layers of truth. Why did this happen? Well, we don't always know. 
they're good reasons. At the time, Peter had no idea why Jesus had died. And he had no idea that while Jesus' body was in that tomb, he was preaching in Hades. There were more things going on than he realized. What he thought, what he saw, was not the whole story. And every sufferer needs to remember this truth. Don't rush to judgment when you're suffering. Don't overreact. Don't get overly discouraged. An exciting and meaningful purpose of God may yet be revealed that might just make your suffering worth every tear and every tissue. And this subject of the spirits in prison, it causes Peter to tell more of their story. Notice verse 20. He says, Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, we're saved through water. Oh boy, when pastors suffer and get discouraged, they need to remember Noah. He preached faithfully for 120 years and only eight souls took heed and climbed on board. And that was his family. Did you know the entire human race was salvaged by the faith of eight people? By Noah, Mrs. Noah, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives. It's been said Noah was the most successful financial manager of all time. He kept his stock afloat while the rest of the world was in liquidation. Noah's flood has tremendous historical relevance. It's one of antiquity's most validated events. You know, some variation of a worldwide flood survived by a single man and his family appears in the lore of every culture on the planet. All the ancient civilizations may have corrupted, but they're compatible stories. In addition, geologists today have a tough time accounting for the Earth's fossil record without factoring in the massive effects of a global flood. The story of Noah has incredible geological and historical significance. But the flood's real relevance isn't just historical, it's also typological. Verse 21 goes on and says... For there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, and then he qualifies it, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. Here's Peter's point. The flood was to Noah what the Holy Spirit's purifying is to us. It was a cleansing and it was a new crack at life. You know, it's no accident that throughout the Bible, God is always bringing his people through water. He opened the Red Sea, and Moses brought the Hebrews out of Egypt. Joshua led the Israelis into the Promised Land across the dried-up Jordan Riverbed. Noah gets a new start here via washout. The flood purged the earth of its perversions, and Noah and his family stepped off the ark into a new world to live a new life. Mankind got a brand new start. And this is what happens when we give our lives to Jesus and we get baptized into the body of Christ. He cleanses us and he gives us a brand new start. I love 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. It's one of my favorite verses. There we're told, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Every new believer is like a Noah. You get up from the altar of repentance with new power and new friends and new directions and new motives and new adventures. 
And notice Peter isn't here talking about a literal washing or, or water baptism. He takes more, it takes more than water to cleanse a conscience. This is all a metaphor. It takes a deep clean to cleanse a conscience. Peter is speaking here of the spiritual baptism that occurs at our conversion. You see, when you come to Jesus, before I ever baptize you with water, the Holy Spirit baptizes you. He initiates you into new life and into the body of Christ. Lest we misunderstand, Peter adds this parenthesis here in verse 21. He says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's telling us, you can bathe a thousand times. You can get baptized a thousand times until your whole body gets pruny. Looks like the tip of your finger. And your soul will be just as dirty as when you started. It takes God's spirit to cleanse your spirit. And, and here's more comfort for the sufferer. Some suffering can get severe. Suffering can seem like the end. The end of joy and happiness and prosperity and health and even life itself. Often we think that the suffering we're going through is going to kill us. But just the opposite is true. For suffering is always an opportunity for a new beginning. Even if it does kill you, you're going to start over with Jesus. All suffering in some degree clears the slate and creates a new start. It purges the former landscape as in Noah's situation. New situations emerge with new people and new goals and new gains and new measurements and new potentials in the wake of your suffering. A tough illness. A painful divorce. A long layoff. You thought it was going to kill you, but it ended up to be a new start. Suffering can turn your life on ear in an instant. Sufferers will tell you how their whole world, all their priorities changed in a single day. When you suffer, you realize that God may re be redirecting your life in a new direction. And then Peter closes in verse 22, speaking of the risen Christ. He says, who has gone into heaven and has at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. You know, we talk about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. Here he mentions his ascension back to heaven. The fact that Jesus was received up into heaven assured his disciples that the Father was pleased with the Son. That God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice. You see, his ascension proved that Jesus now had authority in heaven to do God's bidding. This excited the disciples. They realized that they now had a friend in high places. If you hope to one day ascend to heaven yourself, you need to know who's got the clout there and who can get you in. Who in heaven has the pull? Moses is a wannabe. David is a has-been. In God's heaven, Jesus is the man. You need to know Jesus if you want to go to heaven. I love how Peterson paraphrases verse 22. He writes, Jesus has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. He's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes. Jesus is heaven's champion. 
And for a sufferer, this creates great confidence. What kind of hope is there to pray and not know who's on the other end of the prayer? Did you know that when you pray in Jesus' name, you're jumping to the head of the line? You get the CEO on the line. Everything in heaven and earth lies under the feet of Jesus. He has ultimate authority in the final appeal. That's why there's always sweet rest in his will. Let me close with a quote by Pastor John Ortberg. This was from his last year's Easter message. I think it's appropriate for this passage. He writes, People have not gathered for the past 2,000 years to say, The stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say, the dollar has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say, the unemployment rate has risen. Or the gross domestic product has risen. Or General Motors has risen. Or the value of your 401k has risen. The only hope that has held up human beings across every continent and culture for two millennia through the difficult times of poverty, disease, pain, hardship, and even death itself, is Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This July 4th, be thankful that you live in America. Pray for the troops that defend our freedoms. But if you're a sufferer, if you want to graduate from the school of suffering, it's not Uncle Sam you need as your tutor. You need to reach out today to the king of suffering. For Jesus knows your pain. He has overcome. Today, Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven. He is your hope. He is your comfort. He is your example. Trust in Jesus with all your heart.